Morley Desai had two young kids and was recently separated from her husband. She was approaching 40, life's midpoint, according to the thesis of a book she'd recently read. And as the daughter of a small business owner, Morley had always nursed her own entrepreneurial dreams. All of this, plus the timely urging of a friend, conspired to convince her that she needed to seize the moment. Today, Morley is three months into the acquisition of a $4 million e-commerce business. You might say it's a dream come true, but let's not get carried away. We all know that the real work begins only once you actually take ownership of the business you acquire. Morley is learning quickly what makes e-commerce, yes, attractive, but also punishing at times. We cover many of the dynamics of a $4 million e-commerce business and how a loan acquisition entrepreneur acquires such a business with an SBA loan. This is a hopeful story of someone who had had a traditional path, but finally heeded the nagging itch to set out on her own. Please enjoy my conversation with Morley Desai, owner of Amira Natural Skincare. Welcome to Acquiring Minds, a podcast about buying businesses. My name is Will Smith. Acquiring an existing business is an awesome opportunity for many entrepreneurs, and on this podcast, I talk to the people who do it. Top of the list for most acquisition entrepreneurs after they close on the business is digital marketing. Is the business doing it properly or at all? Has the website been touched since 2005? In many cases, that website is going to need an overhaul. Eversight is a firm that works with searchers to do custom redesigns of their websites for a flat monthly fee. So you don't need to spend down your precious working capital for a custom redesign of the website. That and all ongoing support is baked into their monthly fee. So your website cost is simple and predictable month after month with the assurance of knowing that you can ping the folks at Eversight for any changes you might need. And you will talk to a human. Call or email your Eversight rep, make a request, and expect your changes live in hours, sometimes minutes. There is so much going on when you transition that business you buy Make the website management easy by putting it in the capable hands of Eversight. Check out eversight.com slash searchers, E-V-E-R-S-I-T-E dot com slash searchers. Morley Desai, welcome back to Acquiring Minds. Thank you for having me, Will. Morley, you were on a few weeks ago as one of the three female panelists interviewed by Chelsea Wood. Your story got some brief airtime there, but I wanted to have you back on to share it in its entirety. So thank you for saying yes for a second time. Morley, before we get to your story of buying the business, let's have some background. Can you share a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. So um, uh, I think my story starts kind of before I was even here, um, but my parents are immigrants from India. They immigrated in the late 70s before I was born. Uh, but they, um, you know, kind of the true racks to riches stories, they came over with, with nothing and then have built um, the, themselves up and, and, and then had a family. And uh, my mom was a small business owner. She started her business when I was uh, in middle school and then into high school. And so I watched her build this business. And my dad uh, was a pharmacist, 
had a great job, but I saw him clock in and clock out. And it was a very different experience with the two of them. And so growing up, I was like, I want to be a business owner. This this looks great. My mom got a lot of respect from the community. She loved what she did. Uh, and I had a lot of great times um, helping her uh, with her business. Sorry, what was that business? Yeah, she was an accountant. So she started her own accounting practice where she did uh small business accounting for other small businesses. So <laughs> so was exposed to a lot of entrepreneurs growing up. So um, I spent a lot of time, uh, look, as I mentioned, with entrepreneurs. And I always thought being an entrepreneur meant startup, that you had to start something from scratch. And that was what I had seen my mom do. And so when I um, graduated college, I decided to go work on Wall Street. Um, and after Wall Street, got my MBA and then worked for corporate, always thinking that, okay, I'm going to do entrepreneurship at some point. I'm going to get a brilliant idea and I'm going to start something. Uh, and just never had that burning platform or that desire to, to bootstrap something. And so I had met a friend a couple of years ago and I was lamenting to her about my woes of uh, not feel, feeling, feeling fulfilled at corporate. And she was like, why don't you just buy something? And it was one of those things like the record scratch of like, wait, what? Like you can actually do that. <laughs> um, and so as I looked more into it uh, and, and read the prerequisite books, did the research, I was, it came to fruition that yes, this is exactly what um, what I needed to do. Um, and, and it was an idea for a long time. I remember, I think it was early 2019, I was on my second maternity leave um, and just noodling it and talking to another one of my friends who had also gone out on their own. And, and he was like, okay, so what's your date? And I said, what do you mean? He's like, what's your date of when you're gonna do this? Um, and so I put it out there. I said, you know, May 1st, 2020 sounds like a nice, round date, um, you know, not knowing <laughs> what the world would be like at that point. Right, right in the heart of COVID, trying to time things perfectly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I said, that's going to be my date. That will be when I um, when I officially leave corporate. And and for me, I needed to do it uh, full force. I couldn't side hustle it. I, I'm i just uh, very focused uh, when of what I get into. And so for me, I just needed to have a clean break. And so... Uh, and Morley, th this friend of yours was also going to start something and that person was going to buy something or start something? They were they were on the uh, startup track. So they had actually okay. left uh, corporate. We worked together and they had started something. Um, but I had t told them that my vision was something different. It was more uh, entrepreneurship through acquisition. Um, but yeah, and, the, and the other friend who had um, planted the seed in, uh, or record scratch for you about buying something. Just curious, how did that person know? Was that somebody who had bought a business themselves? Yeah, so that person uh, had just graduated from Stanford's business school where um, where it was just a lot more of the noise. I, I had come out of Wharton uh, in 2009 and I don't remember anyone talking about search funds and buying businesses out of business school at that point. I think it was still kind of on the coast at that point. Um, and so she had gone through an ETA class at Stanford, uh, and so she was the one that had pointed me into the to the direction of the resources. And and then Morley, another background question, just going all the way back to your mom and how seeing her made you want to be an entrepreneur. 
And yet she was a small business entrepreneur and the other entrepreneurs that she exposed you to, her clients were also small business entrepreneurs. Um, and it's interesting to me, I, I don't think you're alone here, but even seeing that traditional entrepreneurship, small business entrepreneurship, somewhere along the way, you still convinced yourself that being an entrepreneur didn't look like that. It looked like Mark Zuckerberg. I wonder, I wonder why even you, somebody who's exposed to um, small business entrepreneurs, never said to themselves, I, that's the type of entrepreneur I'll be. Yeah, I think it's just you get conditioned in, into it depending on what your path is, right? So, you know, I, I worked on Wall Street. I saw examples of bigger companies. I worked with bigger companies. I worked in private equity. Uh, and then when you go into business school, the focus is not on small business entrepreneurship. The focus is more about becoming CEOs and CFOs of kind of the Fortune 500. And then once you get into corporate, right, it's, it's, a, it's a race to get to the top. And so, um, you know, that became the prevailing uh, visual of what it was to run a business rather than the small scale, um, small business entrepreneurship. And when the friend who had come out of GSD said to you, why not buy something uh, that immediately did grab you, but was there any kind of resetting of expectations in your own mind you needed to do to shift what you've been conditioned to understand as success as entrepreneurship to this idea, oh, maybe I'm going to be a small business owner. Yeah, and I think it's like th this is where also the the gender dynamics come into play, right? You've heard the anecdote about a woman feeling they need to have a hundred percent of the criteria to be able to take the risk, and I think that's what came up. It was that you know, do I have the requisite skill set to be able to go and actually run a company on my own rather than doing it kind of in a corporate where you work your way up and and have that full set of kind of resources to help you. Um, and so I think that was another part of it too, of like, you know, can I do this? Do I have, you know, the finance, the marketing, all the different functional areas, uh, not realizing that you don't have to be, you don't have to have it all checked off to be able to do entrepreneurship. And so, so what was it that gave you the nudge of confidence that indeed you could do it? Yeah, for me, it, you know, it, it goes back to the anecdote, you know, if, you, if you're if you're trying to lose weight and you're trying to eat healthy, surround yourself with people that eat healthy. If you're trying to, you know, read more or work out more, surround yourself with those people. And so I purposely surrounded myself with entrepreneurs. Um, you know, a key thing that I did in my journey is I joined the acquisition lab with Chelsea and you know, made sure that I was in those circles where people talked about entrepreneurship as it was just an everyday occurrence. And it mm -hmm. was through being exposed to people that were already taking the risk that you start kind of osmosis, right? It seeps in and you kind of start believing it and seeing the vision of it. Is it? Is it? Excellent. Okay, great. Um, back. So back to the story. So we're in 2019. You have pegged May 1st, 2020. Nice round date to um, step off the ledge. Yeah, so, you know, here comes May 1st, 2020. I, um, at, my husband at the time had just moved out of the house. We had decided to get separated. Uh, my youngest child had just turned one, and so, and my oldest one was only two and a half at, the, at that point. Um, you know, I, I had, was about to turn 39, and I had all these dreams of what I wanted to accomplish, bef you know, before 40, and so, 
you know, I, I felt like my world was falling apart at that point. And I was like, you know what, we're just going to go ahead and blow everything up. And I, and, and we were in the pandemic, right? We were in this new world of like, we didn't know what was going to happen. And so I ended up calling my boss and saying, I'm out. This is my dream. If I don't do it now, I'm never going to do it. And I don't want to regret it. So, so that kind of, I stuck to that date and that kind of started the dominoes. Now it took me another year to actually leave my corporate job because I wanted to leave in the best way possible. So that if I have to call, call my boss in like six months or a year and be like, I need to come back that I can easily come back. Um, but it was something that I, you know, I was like, we got to do this now or it'll never happen. So you gave notice a full year notice. I initially gave notice and I said, hey, this isn't like a, a normal two week, I'm out in two weeks. I want to work with you and make sure that you're, you know, you've got what you need um, to be able to, to kind of continue operating the team. And so it started with me like, hey, just can you just hire your backfill? And, and then it became with the great resignation, I ended up rehiring the whole entire team. And so um, it took about a year to kind of get the new team up and running and then kind of acting as a, a chief of staff to my boss so that he could be in a good position where when I finally did leave, um, that he was in a lurch so that if I had to come back, there was, there was a good enough relationship that I could always come back. Yeah. Well, both a, a pragmatic and um, very ethical way to, to go out the door. Um, Morley, so just a little bit more on your decision to, quote, blow everything up. Um, coming off of a separation, uh, like, and then COVID, and then age, and then uh, young, two young children, uh, and then wanting to be an entrepreneur, realize his dream. Maybe just, can you elaborate a little bit on your emotions? Was it like joyous or was it tears or was it, or it depends on the hour of the day or what? It really does. And it was all kind of mixed up together where, yeah, some days I'd wake up and I would be excited and I'm going to do this. And, you know, we're re rewriting the whole script for the following um, 2000 weeks of my life. I, I always uh, reference back to this great book that I read, 4,000 Weeks. Um, and 4,000 is approximately your life, right? It's about 80 years. Um, and kind of having those 2,000 weeks left, it was like, you know, if I, I got to make sure that the last half of the life is what I really want it to be. Um, but then there were days that I'd wake up and I'd be like, what am I doing? I, you know, I'm a single mom, middle-aged. I just left a, a very stable job. We were in the middle of a ma massive pandemic. Um, you know, I'm self-funding myself and then, you know, working off the savings. And so it was definitely a lot of ups and downs, not only in making the decision, but then also through the search phase is extremely up and down. And even now operating in these first 90 days is also extremely up <laughs> and down. And I take it your mom's, going again back to your history, your mom's business wasn't so tumultuous. It was set more steady. In the beginning, it was tumultuous. You know, she had to build it from scratch and and kind of get clients. And so, I mean, she's been operating it now for over 25 years. And so now she's got it steady state. Um, but she's been a great uh, advisor and support system um, in talking about her experiences and the things that she had to to overcome. And so, you know, I think that's also nice too, is having that community of entrepreneurs to kind of talk about the highs and lows 
um, and then to be able to get through it together. And you're in Atlanta and your and your parents are also in Atlanta? Yes, correct. Cool. cool. All right. Um, oh, and, and 4,000 weeks. So I haven't listened to the book, but he, Sam Harris had like an excerpt of uh, the book on his app, which I listened to and really enjoyed. Um, but just tell, tell us, I mean, there are, there are a lot of books about, you know, seizing the moment sort of, um, or, you know, using your year as well. Um, but I too found that authors, the way he portrayed things quite, um, it really grabbed me, but I guess not enough to get read the book. Maybe I'll get there. Um, <laughs> but, but just cause I have, you heard you mention the book before you mentioned it on, with the, on the panel. Uh, what, what do you think about that book, which is an old message, use your life wisely, you know, self-actualize. What do you think it was about how he packaged this message that so grabbed you? Yeah, I think it was just also the context of where I was yeah. in my personal life and where things were changing very quickly um, and just realizing that I just hadn't put a lot of thought because I always thought there was infinite amount of time. Yeah. Um, that book just helped me kind of understand, you know, that there is a such thing as mortality and that, you know, you've got to make clear trade-offs and clear decisions and, um, and you know, figure out what it is you want to do. And so that was kind of the big wake-up call for me, you know, turning 40 and then just also all the changes and in my family life. Um, that was, it was just like the right book at the right time. Totally. As, as books, they often do, if they grab you or not, um, it depends very much on your own personal context. You already know that business owners are making amazing use of virtual assistants, often based in the Philippines. And while virtual assistants are helpful, virtual professionals are transformative. More Staffing is a boutique agency that hires A players in the Philippines, not for task execution, but for deep competency work. Think controllers, operators, supply chain managers. More Staffing helped an e-commerce company build their entire supply chain analytics and finance team. It saved them over $400,000 and enabled them to build the in-house expertise of a much larger business. Global Staffing is increasingly the norm, and building the muscle within your business to take advantage of it will be crucial in the years ahead. So if you're sourcing the next management hire within your business, make sure you speak with more staffing first about the pool of capable, affordable managers they can connect you with. Check out morenow.co. That's morenow.co. Okay, so take us now to the search or, or when the process actually begins. You've, you've taken a year to rehire everybody on your team in corporate. Uh, you've, you've gone out gracefully. Then what? Yeah, so um, it you know it was a situation where my boss was like, you could stay as long as you want. And then we were at the point where I was literally about to turn 40. And I was like, okay, this is my last day, the day before I turned 40. And I said, <laughs> I, I got to go. Like, this is not, you know, like I said, I can't side hustle things. I wasn't really focused on it. And so I officially left, you know, full cold turkey. And then at that point, it was really a journey in kind of crafting what this was going to look like. So initially, the only criteria I had was that it had to be in Atlanta because I couldn't relocate my family. Um, and so then there was a series of decisions of, you know, is it traditional versus is it is an accelerator funded versus is it a search uh, self-funded search fund? 
Um, it was a, a series of decisions of, is it services? Is it product? Um, you know, what are the criteria? Uh, and it was through looking at lots of different businesses, getting in there, kind of doing the, the dil- kind of the early diligence, the modeling to kind of figure out what was the right fit for me. Okay. And okay, let's go through each of those quickly. Um, starting from the last one, what, um, what type of business did you choose and why? Yeah, so I landed on an e-commerce business. Um, and so some of the, the big criteria that I had to decide was size of business, right? And for me, it came down to I wanted to be able to replace the salary that I was getting at corporate. So I looked at um, businesses that had SDE of at least 750. And then I wanted to do, on the top end, I wanted to do an SBA loan. And so it was kind of tapping out at about $1.5 million in SDE to be able to kind of successfully do um, an SBA loan. And so that became kind of the first criteria. The second criteria was um, a decision of kind of doing services versus products. So my background yeah. is product strategy and product marketing from corporate uh, and also the other big thing, too, is with services, your main product or your main, you know, what you're selling is usually people. Um, and thinking about that, a key decision I made is the desire not to be managing a lot of people and have that have the crux of the day to day be the people piece. Um, you know, I led teams when I was in corporate and I just it just used to suck the, the energy out of me to have so much time spent kind of managing people and dealing with um, with their issues and just having to be super empathetic. And so for me, going more on the product side allowed me to be a little bit more analytical, a little bit more removed from the people management, and that was a better fit for what I was looking for. Let, let's um, double click there on that people thing because that will be something that other many listeners are, are considering and certainly like managing people is um, one of the big challenges of getting into small business if, if you don't do a product business. And so your experience in corporate led you to believe that you just really didn't want to do that again. Do you think that is because managing people is inherently really, really difficult? Or is it something about you as a manager that makes it more difficult than maybe it is on average? Kind of try to... Um, try to generalize from your own experience in a way that might help the audience think through this decision for themselves. Yeah, I think it's totally personal, right? It's it's looking at yourself and seeing where your skill sets are, but also where you derive energy versus what saps your energy. Uh, and I just knew from being in corporate, managing uh, large teams of people um, that have all of their complexities, that used to sap a lot of my energy versus I things that I could kind of individually contribute and work on and, and kind of produce on my own gave me energy. And so as I thought about businesses and I kind of envisioned myself, did I envision myself talking to people all day, every day, or did I envision myself, you know, having a couple of people on the team more in a collaborative environment where we're all kind of working together rather than direct management and then being able to, um, you know, spend time to kind of deep think and to work on strategy and to work on analytics. And that was a lot, you know, when I thought about it, one of them gave me a lot more energy than the other scenario. Wow. 
you're causing me to rethink my entire uh, <laughs> direction. When you uh, just describe those two, I, I think I also resonate with the, the latter. Um, okay, great. So you have your criteria dialed in. You had talked about surrounding yourself with other people to, to give yourself the kind of give yourself confidence, make it seem normal, not weird that you're going out to be an entrepreneur, that you're going out to buy a business. You, you decide, I know from our pre-call that you kind of do it on your own, submit some LOIs, doesn't go anywhere. So talk through all that stuff up to your decision to join the lab. Yeah. So in the beginning, um, I was uh, very kindly gifted a broker list for the Atlanta area. So I kind of did what a lot of searchers do initially. I sent out the form letter to a bunch of brokers and kind of introduced myself and and asked them for, you know, can we get coffee? Can we do a call? Um, and didn't get great responses. I, you know, I was like, well, that's kind of, you know, that's kind of a bummer. Um, and so I had pivoted away from that and, and just didn't feel great with kind of the interactions I had had with brokers. I mean, a lot of it looking back now was just because like I wasn't clear on what I wanted. Um, and brokers are a different, um, you know, a different kind of subset of people. And so really understanding what their motivations are very important in interacting with them. And so I pivoted quickly. Um, to doing more of a proprietary search. And I really focused, um, because I was Atlanta um, focused, my head Atlanta roots, was um, focusing on female and minority business owners in the Atlanta area, um, feeling that I had a more compelling story to tell in terms of being able to, um, you know, pro pro protect and, um, you know, kind of pass along their legacy. Um, and so, and that was a great experience. You know, I worked with, I mentioned my mom and, and that community and then my financial advisor, my CPA, uh, local lawyers, um, and met a lot of great business owners um, through that experience. Uh, and through that process, put in three LOIs. Um, what was difficult though, is a lot of those business owners um, we're just kicking the tires. They were just understanding what could they get, right? And so we would have multiple conversations over and over again. Um, and they were very generous about opening their business up to me and learning, but we couldn't get to an agreement on valuation. And so in those three LOIs, I had to uh, walk away because we just couldn't agree on valuation. Um, and I knew what I wanted to pay. I had some great relationships with some lenders. And so they were also validating what they thought, um, you know, valuations would come in for the SBA. And so from that experience, I pivoted then back to brokers. Uh, and that's at this point is also when I joined the acquisition lab um, because I had put in my third LOI and, and it just didn't work. And so I said, okay, I'm doing something that's not working here. I need to find um, a new path. And the acquisition lab proved to be that path where uh, not only did I have support from advisors that could help me on things like valuation and, um, you know, understanding a business, but also the cohort of other entrepreneurs that were out there doing the same thing, which I think cannot be underestimated because it is a very lonely and emotional journey. Mm -hmm. um, but it, uh, and it also just was a place that I could go to find other women um, because I wasn't meeting a lot of women in, in what I was doing before. 
we're going to get more into that morally, but I just want to circle back to a couple of things. Your um, opinion about brokers, you, you kind of send out emails reaching out saying, I'm a buyer in town, Look at, you know, like, let's talk and don't get much response. And you kind of realize in retrospect that maybe it was your approach or messaging wasn't dialed in. And, and so it was kind of more on you than on them. Although, as we all know, brokers can also are known for not being super responsive. What was it now when you look back on that initial outreach that you were not doing as well as you could have? Yeah, I think it's just providing the information they care about, right? Like the question is, can you get a deal done? So I got pre-qualified um, by a couple SBA lenders and I had that support letter that I would send them. Um, I filled out the SBA personal financial statement that showed that I had, you know, the equity that I could use to get a deal done. Um, and then a very targeted resume that showed my experience base and, and kind of, and then the last thing was a very targeted statement of what I was looking for. Um, and so after I went back to brokers and kind of sent out my initial email, I would literally five minutes later get a phone call. And, and say, wow. hey, I've got this or I don't have this. And I think it was just speaking their language where yeah. they get a lot of inbound requests from people saying, hey, I'm interested. But the way I had approached is saying, you know, my my goal is to get a deal done in the next six months. Here is the, all the supporting documentation that's already prepared um, in order to move forward. And so I think that kind of just changed the tone of my outreach compared to some of the other ones that they were getting. Yeah, which was just too open-ended, too vague. Hey, I'm a buyer in town, let's talk. Yeah. Great, and then when you, so you you leaned on your, as you said, then your next step was to kind of lean on your network, um, the immigrant community, female business owners. Um, you said your CPA, maybe your mom and her network, lawyers. So those were all, in each of those cases, those were all kind of part of the immigrant community in Atlanta. And you were just saying, hey, let people know, you know, there's a young Wharton grad, daughter of immigrants out here in Atlanta looking to buy a business. And yep. you got some deal flow from them. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of great deal flow. But again, um, owners that were not necessarily looking to sell. And that's the key thing that I tell people now. Proprietary networks are uh, great, especially if you're very targeted in what you're looking for. But it's a little bit harder because at least with the broker, they've gone through the mental work of, of understanding valuations, of committing sure. to actually putting their company up for sale. With proprietary, you oftentimes have to work through that with them. And so two of the LOIs that I put in that eventually I had to walk away because of uh, valuation ended up calling me again six months later, but I was already under, um, I was about to close on another business. And so I think it's definitely doable. You just have to have a little bit more patience and a longer timeline because you're having to do the work to get them comfortable for a sale. It's it's a pattern that I have just heard so many times where, and typically it's the brokers who are absorbing this, that a seller has unrealistic expectations of the valuation of their business. Somebody, either uh, an eager buyer, independent direct buyer like you, or a broker says tells them what the realistic valuation is. They don't like it and they say, bug yep. off or no thanks. And then they process it or maybe learn more or maybe talk to their accountant or do something. But six months later, 
their expectations have come down to earth and are realistic. And then they re reapproach whoever it was that had approached them the first time, be it a broker, be it a buyer. So really interesting. I'm just curious though, because um, th these buyers, these sellers, do you know how off your valuation was? I mean, are they, we know that like people who build little SaaS businesses in like in tech land have completely unrealistic expectations because everything, all tech valuations are so inflated. But like in small business land, are sellers also kind of expecting millions and millions or what? What, what, what more did you learn about their psychology? Yeah, I think a lot of times they end up pricing in future potential, right? I had one seller that's business was growing nicely. And so they wanted to get paid on, you know, kind of future earnings um, without even it being there. And so I kept mentioning, you know, like, that's just not a way we value businesses. We value business. And I was willing to do TTM for him, right? The trailing 12 months, not even the last audited or the last uh, tax return year. And still he was pushing to have kind of the full year. We were only, I think, in May at that point, and he wanted to do a multiple on the full year. Um, and so it was just conversations like that, that just, you know, when I, you know, when I would think about it and I would try to model it out, it was just too much risk. Um, yeah. And then with the SBA, right, you're limited with earnouts and some of these more, um, you know, creative solutions. And so I'd also would communicate, you know, there's only so much I can do, um, to do to do these creative solutions if we're going to be valuing it on future earnings. And so, yeah, eventually there had to walk away. So it sounds like they may have been open to some kind of earn out, but your hands were tied because the SBA won't permit that. Exactly. They, they, they might have done some interesting terms. Okay. All right. Uh, okay, this is great, Morley. So you you joined the lab and you j had just said the importance of being around other people doing this. Um, what else? Talk talk more about what else you the lab kind of helped you dial in. I got how you approached brokers. That's a huge one. Yeah. But tell was there anything more, or were those the the big things? Yeah, I mean, for me, it was just having that suite of advisors that I can yeah. go to and just say, hey, does this sound okay? Does this sound weird? Um, and people that had been through it, had been through the acquisition process, I can't, you know, that's what I was missing in the first year of looking for a business is that I just felt like I wasn't on an island and I didn't have anyone that I could ask for advice. And so that was very valuable. Um, and being able to take the deals to the to a deal forum where you would have you know a, a whole kind of community coming together to provide insight i mean that's just so valuable to get kind of all of that insight from not only fellow searchers but for advisors and so that was that was huge um but the biggest thing was confidence too right i um after three failed lois i was kind of i don't know if this is if this is the right thing for me am i doing something wrong and so having that to kind of pick me up again and, and having those fellow searchers to say, yeah, I'm there with you. Um, I don't think I could have gotten to where I am had I not had the, that community. Mm -hmm. um, and any advisors in particular you want to shout out that were, that were particularly helpful? Yeah. I mean, Chelsea, who runs the lab, um, is, is amazing. She's a rock star. She has 
an open calendar that if you just need to get 15, 20 minutes with her, you can just go in and book it. And so there were so many things where it was like, okay, I need to talk to someone today before I like turn in this LOI and I can get time with her. Um, and she's just, she's seen so much. And so I, I really uh, trusted her judgment from seeing so much of it. So she, yeah, she would definitely be be one of the M MVPs of getting my deal done. <laughs> great, great. All right. So now tell us about finding the business that you bought. Yeah. So my third failed LOI was an e-commerce business. And it was through looking at that business that I decided fully that an e-commerce business is what I wanted to do. And the benefit of that, it's completely virtual. So my geography constraint um, just became a lot easier if I could find an online business. Um, and then going back to the broker route, right? There's a couple of great brokers. Quiet Light is the one that I um, eventually uh, worked with to get my deal done. Uh, but what's great is that, you know, they, um, they pop up online. So you don't have to do a whole lot of outbound um, calling. You kind of just have to be quick on the draw once you see them pop up and, and kind of contact the broker right away. And so as soon as I had decided on e-commerce, I just watched the different listings. And as soon as something popped up that remotely looked like it could fit my criteria, I immediately reached out. And after looking at about 50 to 60 businesses, I had gotten it down to an art that I could probably turn an LOI around kind of within 24, 48 hours of speaking to the owner. Wow. A full, the, a full offer within 24 hours. So, and with Quiet Light, one of the benefits of their model is that when, you know, they send out the teaser, you say, I'm interested. It's all clearly, it's all automated. And then they, you say, I'm interested. And then they immediately respond with a package, uh, the SIM. And most interestingly, of course, is the video interview with the seller. So it's 20 or 30 minutes with typically the founder, not always, but usually it's the founder of the business, founder, seller, yeah. um, talking through the business. And, you know, these kind of candid interviews, obviously everybody's trying to sell, but um, they, they feel often quite honest that the sellers will talk about you know, the limitations of the problems and why they want to sell and, and what feels like a pretty, um, pretty transparent way. It's, it's, it's really, it's really cool. Now, when you said 50 or 60, though, m I know my deal flow from, from Quiet Light is not that volume. I just get kind of a trickle less than one a day, far less than one a day. Mm -hmm. Is that yours as well? Or am I not in the, did you, is there some other list I should be on? Yeah, no, the 50 and 60 is just like from the beginning, right? Yeah. Through the journey. Um, yeah. And so it included the broker outreach, the proprietary, yep. you know, the online stuff. But yeah. And what I used to, um, uh, because there's a couple of different online sites, I used um, this thing called Market Watch that's offered by Centurica the due diligence company, and it's an aggregator of a lot of the online sites. And so I didn't have to be on all the multiple sites. I can be, I can just have the market watch um, alert set up. And so that was kind of nice too, where it, again, it streamlined all the various listings that would come in. And, and honestly, you know, the criteria of setting it for the SDE is the biggest um, thing that kind of whittles it down. And so you're right, it wasn't a whole lot of deal flow. It's maybe a couple a week, but um, but it was enough to kind of find the one that, you know, that I eventually ended up buying. You know, um, they're really at least, uh, okay, so I'm just saying this based on what I see from Quiet Light. There are many other brokers out there selling online e-commerce businesses, but there aren't 
that many that I see that are in the range that you're looking for. I mean, a lot of them are quite a bit smaller. And I, I um, suspect that, you know, how in the offline traditional business world, we talk about pri- competing with private equity and private equity has a threshold uh, below which they're just, it's too small. They're not that interested. And people often say it's, you know, maybe 2 million in EBITDA or maybe even, you know, smaller PE firms um, will come down even further to 1 million. Um, but I feel like in e-commerce, the more sophisticated buyers, private equity, but also aggregators, aggregators are the, you know, the big name uh, and the big moneyed, moneyed interest in e-commerce, at least at this time, uh, when, when we're talking about your acquisition, will come down lower, yeah. you know, a lot lower than PE in the traditional world. So making a business like the, the, of the size that you wanted to find that much harder in e-commerce, because an e-commerce business doing a million in EBITDA or a million in SDE is a very desirable business to a lot of parties, acquis- individual acquisition entrepreneurs and aggregators alike. So um, yeah, I just feel like you got, there was good fortune smiling on you, Morley. I think that's true. And I remember talking to the broker um, and kind of saying, you know, what what are the other offers look like? And she was very honest and said, you know, there's a couple of aggregators um, that have put in offers already. And I think that was also one of the things that I was able to set myself apart from the aggregator. And I pushed to have a call with the seller because I wanted him to know that like, this isn't a financial transaction to me. And luckily, the the um, you know the taint on aggregators was also starting to spread at that point too, yeah. with a lot of these aggregators kind of going belly up and not really being able to. Um, to kind of get to close on the initial terms that they had initially offered. And so that was one of the things that I did is I I really set myself apart from aggregators and said, you know, this is a personal uh, business. Um, and it was very lucky where the business where I was like the ideal customer for this business. And I really wanted to be the face of it um, going forward. And so, and, and wrote um, a personal handwritten letter saying, you know, this is really what my dream is. Um, and I was, I think I was able to win because I was able to show that I wasn't just a financial check, right? That there was something else that I wanted to bring to this business. A personal handwritten letter. That's very, um, from the residential real estate world. People want, really want that house and they, and they write a personal letter to the sellers to, in a competitive yeah. market. Um, it, did you, where did you get that idea to do that? Uh, Chelsea. Huh? <laughs> There you go, yeah, Chelsea. Because I was telling her, I was like, you know, I, I really want this deal. And I had told her and she's like, you should write them a letter. Um, and so that's what I did. And you wrote it and scanned and just scanned it sort of yep. thing? Yeah, awesome. exactly. The, the seller was not uh, based in the U.S. Um, they, he was abroad. So I, it would have taken forever to mail it to him. So, yeah, exactly. I sent it. I wrote it, sent it to the, um, the broker and the broker forwarded it. Great, great. Okay, well, let's hear what the business is. We keep talking about the business, the business, the business. What is it? Yeah, so the business is called Amira Natural Skincare, amiraskincare.com. It's an online retailer of skincare products, so serums and creams that um, even out skin tone and skin texture specifically for the body. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, what's nice, it's about 80% is through their Shopify website. And then 20% through Amazon, which I, I really um, liked that dynamic rather than a lot of businesses that tend to be the other way. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, because it, among other things, implies, although not necessarily you answer this for me, that there it has built 
a brand um, because it's not just people shopping on Amazon for you know the product with the, the most stars and the cheapest price. People are actually going direct to the website. Now, I could be wrong there because it also could be just be heavily reliant on PPC, maybe a combination of both. Address that, please. Yeah, I think it's a combination of both. They do definitely have a brand. Um, but I think what's nice, too, is that um, there's opportunity to invest in the brand. And so one of, one of my criteria, my qualitative criteria was I wanted to find a product that the, the customer base was majority women. Um, and so I'm excited to be able to further invest in the brand and infuse a mission into it where it, we're all about helping women feel confident in their skin so they can go out there and take on the world. Um, and so, I, you know, it is heavily reliant on PPC right now. So one of the, you know, what I wrote the business plan on and one of the opportunities we're looking at is how do we drive more of an organic presence and also drive more of a brand loyalty yeah. Um, well, in, so the nature of the product, women's skin um, care uh, and, and for, you know, skin imperfections, for lack of a better word, that afflict women specifically. But this seller founder was a dude, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so had he had he done this, I assume he'd kind of done this kind of opportunistically because he somehow perceived this the, a demand for something like this. What's the backstory there? So curious. Yeah. So so his wife is Thai, um, half Thai, half um, uh, Middle Eastern, and so the you know the original idea was kind of born by her. But also he has a um, a great background in digital marketing and had. Um, identified that there was a gap in the market for, you know, for this kind of skincare that had more of a luxury kind of positive spin to it. Um, and so it was kind of, yeah, a fortuitous where he kind of found the gap and was able to build the business and, and kind of drive the marketing muscle behind it. Um, but yeah, but they didn't do any social. So um, it, there's an opportunity, like I said, to really invest in the brand and then launch it to the community in an outward facing way so that there is more of a story behind the brand. Yeah. Yeah. Um, really neat. Okay. Well, let's get in a little bit to the acquisition because it, um, it was, yeah. A little, it was unusual, uh, it was unusual setup. He was not American, you've already said, which plays into this. So, so tell us more. Yeah. So initially, um, my thought was always to use SBA funding. Um, uh, I just like how you can uh, lever it up, and then obviously, e-commerce businesses don't have uh, a lot of assets, and so there weren't a lot of other funding opportunities really open to me. Um, and so kind of fortuitously, when I was looking at deals, I wasn't really paying attention to the to the criteria that said, you know, if it was uh, SBA eligible, and I can't remember if it even had like not eligible written to it, but it was a little bit of a fortuitous thing where I had contacted the broker uh, and I asked about SBA and, and she said, you know, I'm not sure because the owner is not um, American. While the company was a C Corp and it was an American company, there still was questions about it. And so, um, you know, obviously one of the big questions I needed to get answered before I submitted the LOI was that could it could the SBA actually fund it? And it turned out that um, the there were two entities, a US entity and an Australian entity. 
and the U.S. entity could be funded by the SBA. So when I put in my LOI, we actually, I did two LOIs so that we could keep them separate because um, we didn't want the Australian entity to kind of muddy up the um, the SBA deal. And so um, put an offer with with kind of the prerequisite seller note and, and kind of the 80% leverage from the SBA. And then I did a separate LOI for the Australian business where I asked for a fairly large seller note on that side to be able to um, do the deal. And, and that was kind of like, okay, I don't know if he's going to go for it, but luckily he accepted the LOI and kind of had with that kind of hybrid structure on two different deals. And um, and so with the the American, so what was the split in terms of size of the American and Australian entity? Yeah, so total was about a million in SDE, and it was about eight hundred thousand on the U.S. entity, and about two hundred thousand on the Australian entity. Okay, great. So glad you said that. I didn't ask you the size. So in the business, how much revenue was it doing? It was doing about four million in revenue. Okay, so combined. four is. Great. So four million across both entities, a million in SDE across both entities split uh, 80-20, uh, 80 US, 20 Australian. That's really cool. So in that eight for the for the US entity doing 800 SDE with the SBA loan, you didn't, the SBA was kind of none the wiser about the Australian entity. You just were totally silent on that piece of it. This was just about an American buying an Amer American entity, period. And then you have yeah. the side contemporaneous transaction going for the Australian entity. How much did he finance of the Australian entity? He ended up financing up to 85%. Great. Mm -hmm. and, I, and yeah, and, and we're actually, it, it took me three months now to get my Australian business license. So we're actually in the process of closing the Australian entity now, um, now that I've got my Australian business license. <laughs> I was going to ask you, so you're, you, you own a business in Australia. So you bought it to to be able to kind of capture the value there but you're you're closing it down and consolidating Sorry, we we weren't able to close oh, the australian the entity until i had the australian business number and the license and uh for some reason it took the the australian tax um, organization three months to give me that license and so i just got it last week and so now we're in the process of closing the australian acquisition and and uh, so buying a business in Australia, you have to get this license first. Are you? Is this according to Australian law? Like who's, like who's whose legal framework are you using to buy this? Yeah, that's a good question. I you know I've got um, an Australian tax attorney that's been helping me through this, and so we definitely needed to have the Australian business number um, in order to do business there. And and luckily through kind of working with. With that tax attorney, it, we determined I didn't have to have a separate entity in Australia. I could use my U.S. entity to buy the assets of that company so I don't have to pay Australian income taxes. Um, but I do have to pay, obviously, the, the GST, the equivalent of sales tax there. And so you are going to continue to have, to, to have this Australian entity? Yes, correct. Because the $200,000 in SDE is just coming from the Australian market. This is being sold to Australian women in Australia. And yes. And yeah. yeah. And the margins are a lot better on that business because a lot of the back office right, gets, gets done in the U.S. Um, mm. So it's kind of a higher margin business because it's just benefiting um, 
you know, the sales with the, it's got a, and there's no Amazon in Australia, a part of the business. It's just the Shopify store. Mm -hmm. um, so it's kind of a nice add on to, to kind of, um, you know, further scale the back end of what's happening in the U.S. entity and then just have higher margins in the, in the Australian entity. And why is the back end U.S. base if the seller was not American? Um, just because the majority of the revenues are U.S. based. And so just where they would um, pay the contractors, where, mm -hmm. where they would pay a lot of the marketing costs, a lot of the branding costs, um, they were being booked in the U.S. entity. Hmm. Okay. And the fact that you now have an Australian entity and are, are active in, in the Australian market, does that make you feel like you can this is a business that can be taken to Canada and to the UK and other English speaking markets more easily than somebody who's just got an American e-commerce business that's never crossed borders. Yeah. So what was super nice also is that the seller had gone through the work to build out the Canadian store. Um, and so that's actually ready to launch. I actually uh, was able to get my Canadian import license a lot quicker. Um, and so that's ready to go whenever we're ready to launch. My hope was, you know, learn the U.S. piece, acquire the Australian store, and then we're going to launch the Canadian store. And so um, that's absolutely part of the growth plan is to kind of launch in individual geographies. And then after that, um, the U.K. and Europe would probably be next. Great. Well, that's exciting. Um, an exciting possibility for growth. And also on growth, are you envisioning other products with under the Amira umbrella that are tangential to the existing products? Yeah, absolutely. The, you know, the growth kind of um, uh, thesis is kind of threefold. So it's, you know, it's, it's optimizing the digital marketing, uh, trying to you know, move away from the over-reliance on the PPC ads and, and trying to introduce more organic marketing um, it's the additional geographic locations. And then the third one is definitely uh, product launches, um, either organically or inorganic, finding other products that can fit into the brand. Okay. Um, you just said about three things that give me follow-up questions. So, but first I want to circle all the way back to, so people heard this because I've mentioned in other interviews that people email me afterwards saying, what was that you're talking about? The, the, service platform that you were using to track new e-commerce listings hitting the market is something called Market Watch for the audience now by, yes. by Centurica. Centurica is a due diligence firm whose niche is e-commerce and digital businesses. So they're, they really are established in that niche. And just as kind of a, presumably kind of a lead generator for them, they offer this awesome service where, that just basically tracks um, like, like Morley said, aggregates many of the listings across brokerages that focus on digital businesses. So you can go there, you can say, I want an e-commerce business with SEE north of 750. Notify me when a new one hits the market from across these 15 um, brokerages that are being tracked. Um, so exactly. Centurica Market Watch. But on that, Morley, by the way, there is, I believe, a checkbox in your filters for SBA eligibility, which I always checked. And you probably did too. I think I had missed it. You know, I, I think we talked about this. Like it was just one of oh. those fortuitous things that I think I might have missed it or just wasn't paying attention to it. And so, because I don't think this deal initially when it was listed was officially SBA eligible. And so I had not had that criteria checked. Yeah. 
because I knew that Quiet Light had been silent on it in the description, but I didn't recall if you checked it or not on, on MarketWatch. Okay. Um, now back to okay, back to the story. You these opportunities for growth, the uh, over reliance on PPC, and these, and you want to grow it on social. Uh, as I recall from our pre-call, there was also not they're not leveraging the seller was not leveraging the email list. Very yeah, much. they do. Um, they do use um, email marketing, uh, but I think there is an opportunity to um, to prove email. And how many email? What, how big was the list? The big, the list was probably about a hundred and a hundred thousand. Um, probably thirty thousand of them were kind of what they deemed active users. Um, so they did have a pretty nice list, and all of it through. Um, kind of from their website, you know, people uh, choosing to get kind of 10% off and then also from past purchases. But looking at their um, repeat rate, um, which were sometimes kind of single digits, um, there's a lot of opportunity to kind of leverage uh, that email list and existing customers and making sure that they continue to buy and, and kind of offer more subscription type services. They hadn't really explored any of that. And so one of the things that I'm definitely looking into is that, you know, that repeat customer rate, because um, I think there's a lot of good movement that we can do there. And, and on that, let, let's talk about some of the risks of the business. Um, so a product like this, kind of a, kind of a lotions and potions business, uh, one of its appeals is, well, one of its appeals is that these are high margin businesses typically, but it's also a consumable. So if people like it, they come back for more and more and more. So there's a reoccurring nature to the purchases. Um, does it, did it concern you that the, that the, the repeat sales were, were low or did you just chalk that up to, to the seller, not optimizing that? Yeah. I mean, both, right. I think, I think there's, there's definitely a lack of optimization and, and really targeting those existing customers. But also, um, you know, I think there's education too. you know, um, you know, uh, we've got a 60 day money back guarantee. So anyone can return product kind of within 60 days if they don't see a, a difference. And we have a very low return rate. So we do think that customers are happy. Um, but I don't. Yeah, we need. I think we need to do a little bit more work of how do we capture them. And, and you know, we, we just recently introduced subscribe and save on the Amazon platform, and that really exploded. So it does tell me that there is an appetite for repeat purchases, but that we just haven't really taken advantage of it and how to make it very easy for our consumers um, so that they can, you know, it's kind of a, a one-click in rather than having to, physically go back to the site and reorder every time. Yeah. 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 Well, that's very optimistic. Um, and then uh, on, on the product itself, the other thing that would make me nervous about a product like this is like, does it, does it work? Do I, I don't know anything about chemistry. I, I somehow failed to take chemistry. I never even took chemistry. Now I know, and I know you're not a chemist either and you don't expect to, you know, uh, analyze the, components of the, of, of these, of the product, but still like I would feel nervous buying something where I had really have no idea what's in it, how it works, if it works. Um, so how did you, how do you wrap your head around that? And, and, and did you use it? 
Yeah. Before. Yeah. Yeah. So definitely through the the diligence process, I went through the customer journey, ordered product, um, trying it out, uh, and and you know had other people do it too. Um, so like I I wanted to make sure that I was comfortable with that whole journey. Um, and what I like about this product is that it's a, a plant based natural product, and so it is a um, you know, a competitor to someone going to the dermatologist and getting a prescription that has hydroquinone in it, which is, um, you know, a bleaching agent uh, mm. and can be, if you if not used correctly and under the care of a dermatologist, cannot, can um, be dangerous for your skin. Is and it- so this is an all natural alternative. Um, and we have, we've done lab tests to make sure that it can be used on sensitive and intimate areas. Um, and so, you know, having that, um, that documentation, trying it on myself, seeing the customer reviews, um, we ask customers to send before and after pictures so that they can also see for themselves whether they're seeing something that's happening. Um, because it's not an overnight thing. You kind of have to use it consistently for at least 60 days to be able to see some some brightening effects. And so, um, but again, these are all things that I think are opportunities to further educate our customers so that they don't just buy a, a, pro, a bottle and think that overnight it's going to, it's going to make all the difference. Is it? Mm-hmm. Great. And on um, PPC, Morley, so the, the channel that was really being leaned upon. So you the sales, you know, the these $4 million in sales, I mean, that's, uh, don't do public math. What is that? What is that a day? That's, that's over. That's probably what? $10,000 a day in sales. Exactly. Yep. Wow. Um, so, you know, if anything goes wrong with the PPC at any moment, you know, your, your business is big enough, big enough where it's one of those where it's like, you know, downtime for an hour, means hundreds of dollars of SDE to you, maybe, maybe, maybe more with, with a high, high gross product, uh, yes. gross product business. <laughs> um, and you don't know PPC, I assume yourself. Um, so you have, so talk to me about kind of, um, you know, who you're working with for PPC and how you hold on tightly to them. <laughs> yeah. So with the business, it came over, um, with six contractors. So we had two customer service, we had two inventory managers, um, and then one uh, marketing genius, marketing guru, uh, and then one kind of web developer. And so I had them all come over with the business because I wanted to make sure um, we kept operating kind of steady state while I was still getting up to speed. And so the the marketing um, manager that came over, you know, she handles the the PPC mostly. Um, but the the risk was that she was related to the seller. And so I had a six-month contract with her, but she had made it clear that, you know, she she worked in other brands and other businesses. Um, and so beyond six months, you know, there wasn't a guarantee. And so one of my first things in the business was I've got to find a replacement for her. And so um, instead of hiring another marketing manager, I decided to work with an agency that a girlfriend of mine owns uh, and work with her to transition the PPC um, uh, business over to her. And so that's been 
um, you know, a, a kind of a couple month process to make sure that, you know, the existing marketing manager is also involved in that transition and that the new agency can handle that. And exactly for, for that reason of, you know, the business really relies on those PPCs to drive traffic to the site. Uh, and if we lose that traffic, it would, you know, it would be a big detrimental um, effect to the business. Yeah, yeah. Great. And, and so the idea of getting it into an agency's hands as well is that um, then the agency worries about the hiring or loss of a particular PPC manager because the agency will, right. will be a constant. People might come and go from the agency rather than having it just be in a key man or woman. I didn't ask you what she paid for the business. Yeah. So, um, so what was nice with Quiet Light, it had a price on the business and they were asking for three and a half times. Um, and so the, as I mentioned, the SDE was a little bit over a million. So it was about 3.6 million, um, for the total, uh, asking price. And I remember going to the acquisition lab and saying, you know, what should I offer on this? And, 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 um, one of the advisors, uh, Walker uh, Dibel, that wrote the Buy Then Build book was like, mm -hmm. just offer the asking price because then you know that the seller would be willing to, um, to, to sell it to you at that. So I offered uh, what asking was, and I actually thought three and a half times was a fair multiple. It didn't include the inventory. So with the inventory, it was about 3.75. Well, Morley, I mean, so, and, and when are, by the way, when are, we, what are the dates now? Is this mid-2022? Yeah. So um, so I found, I, like I said, I found the business kind of late uh, late July of last year. Um, turned around an LOI as quickly as I could because I knew I was competing with these aggregates, um, aggregators. Uh, and then, you know, we signed the LOI early August. And I had asked for 75 days of due diligence. Um, and my, the bank that I was using for the SBA literally got me a commitment letter on like day 74. <laughs> so, um, you know, and I had, I had in good faith brought, had my lawyer started working on the purchase agreement and everything. I wanted the seller to know that I was still super committed. And luckily, um, he was able to extend my exclusivity, but we didn't get the deal done. We signed it on December 16th. Okay. And it was like after close on December 16th. So that was a Friday. So it, it you know, we, it didn't actually come in close till December 19th. Well, despite the fact that you were competing with aggregators, as you, we've touched on, there was this taint, as you put it, starting around aggregators. So it wasn't, um, and, and I think the e-commerce market had started to soften. I mean, I, I did an episode about the e-commerce e market softening probably a year ago now. We're talking March right now, so probably last March or last spring. Yeah. So anyway, we're all of this to say that the multiple that you got for a million-dollar SDE e-commerce business, which, well, a couple of years ago, everybody wanted. Now e-commerce e itself has a bit of a taint, as, as we know. Um, but still, I mean, that, that just seems like a phenomenal price is, is really what I wanted. <laughs> All of that was to say that seems like a really great multiple for mm -hmm. such a sizable e-commerce business. Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely had risk, right? It was the risk of it not being SBA eligible. There's also yeah. concentration in the business. 
um, where their hero product is 70 to 80% of sales um, and then the over-reliance on PPC. And so there were things, there was definitely risk in the business. Um, and so when I, you know, kind of looked at it and did the modeling, like 3.5 seemed appropriate for me given the risk. Okay. Okay. That's well put. And just going back to your banker and and your lawyer, um, it's not a question that I have asked before, but I, I thought I might start. Your deal team, do you want to give anybody a shout out? Um, who And who was on it? And who did you think did a good job for you? Yeah, absolutely. I had a great deal team. So, um, you know, the SBA piece, especially, I used um, a company called Multifunding. They're um, loan brokers. Uh, but there was a guy named Joe McAleer who was amazing. He literally was the MVP of getting the deal done. Um, we had a couple of hiccups with the bank. They actually ended up getting out of the SBA business at the end of last year. And so it was, there were a couple of times where I didn't, I thought the bank wasn't going to come through and, and, and kind of, as you know, you know, e-commerce deals are not always uh, bank's favorite deals to do. And so he had found me a bank um, that would do not only an e-commerce deal, but a carve out deal. So the U.S. entity had a couple of brands in it, and I was just carving out a piece of the brand. And so there was a lot of oh. work the seller had to do to show the, you know, the 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 bridge from what the the tax return showed to what was the actual financials. And and so the fact that he found a bank that had the appetite to do that. Um, and he ran interference multiple times when the requests came back from the bank that were just just not feasible. Um, he really, yeah, he really. I, I credit him with being able to get the financing done and then and and the deal because without the financing, I couldn't have purchased the business. So even though it was the eleventh hour when it finally came through, that was actually a testament to his ability that he got it done at all. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And, and and there were, I remember going through the points where I would hear like, okay, the SBA or the, the bank has stopped doing SBA loans for this year. And then the bank is pulling out of SBA altogether. And so it was one of these, like, <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if I was the last deal that they had gotten done for the SBA. Um, but, but Joe kind of pushed it through and made sure that they stayed to their commitment. Um, and so, yeah, so I, I just, I'm st so grateful for him because I just don't know if it would have gotten done. And then on the legal Great. side, um, I worked with a lawyer that I was introduced to through the acquisition lab, um, a guy named Joel Ankney. Um, who actually has a great book out also. I, I, I'm blanking on the name of it, but he um, has decades of experience closing small business loans. And his um, legal advice was so invaluable, especially because it was two different transactions. And so there was a lot more that we had to do than just kind of a boilerplate, um, you know, one single purchase agreement. Great. Um, we're we're going to wrap up here, Morley, but I do have a couple more questions for you. The I recall you talking about the transition. So uh, one of the many contrasts between buying an e-commerce business and buying a people traditional business is the transition. The transition can be so rocky, so delicate, 
when uh, it's a people business. But in your case, yeah, you know, how it's, it? it's 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 kind of anticlimactic with e-commerce businesses, right? Because most of these assets are all digital, and so you know, I was lulled into this false sense of like, oh, this is going to be easy. We got everything transitioned in the first kind of week, and it was you know, everyone warned you about transitioning. Amazon is dangerous, and we didn't have any issues, and we Amazon the shop, we uh, transitioned the Shopify store. Um, and so it was just kind of interesting, you know, we did it all on the first um, working day of the new year. Um, and I was like, and all of a sudden I was seeing money come into my bank account. And so it was just kind of <laughs> this cool experience of, okay, all right, we've done all of that. And and with the um, the inventory, we use a, a third-party logistics company. And so I, I never physically, I still haven't physically seen any of the inventory. I'm just trusting that it's at this 3PL. Um, and so that was really cool. And the first kind of week or two was just kind of smooth sailing. The contractors were continuing to do their job. And then kind of um, right around like the 25, 30 day, uh, we we started having some issues with um, with Amazon. And, um, and our, our hero product, um, we started getting complaints that they were getting the wrong product. And so we, it was just this weird scenario where there was a barcode mix up on the product and they, there was another product that had the same barcode on it, you know, the seller's other brand. And so we ah. had to recall all of our inventory it was our hero product, the one that's 70 to 80%. And so we went through these, this series of like, Amazon supply chain logistical issues. And so the the second 30 days is where like, okay, this is this is my initiation. This is what it means to be an e-commerce owner. And then we also got flagged on the PPC side of Google ads at the same time, where one of the Google bots kind of um, took a bunch of them down for some reason. Luckily, within, you know, a couple of hours, we were able to get the ads back up. But we did see, kind of to your point, we did see traffic drop off considerably. Um, and so now that we're in like the third third, uh, the third set of 30 days, I'm finally kind of getting back to like, okay, now we're kind of getting back to steady state. But, um, you know, the transition's the easy part. The actual operating it, that is, you know, it, it's definitely a drama every single day. It's like, okay, what's the issue that I have to work through today? Oh, because of these two big events, you're now kind of paranoid. Or are there, are there more? Is there, is there kind of a daily, a daily issue? Not a daily issue, but things with Amazon pop up, right? Things with the PPC yeah. pop up. And so it, it just it was just this perfect storm of within the first 60 days, both of those things kind of just popped up. And so, and I remember kind of having a conversation with the seller and he's like, you know, this is what it's like. These things pop up and you gotta like then get in and troubleshoot it. And and I was like, you know, I hope I've banked up some of these these disruptions for the next couple of months. <laughs> but, you know, you just never know when you're going to get flagged by Amazon, by flagged by Facebook, flagged by Google. It just it's just the the environment that you're in. 
does it, um, do you still have the same feeling that e-commerce was the right choice for you? I know it's, it's still early, but you've been through the ringer now a couple of times. I do. I really do. I, you know, I, I, I'm grateful for the team that came over, the contractors that came over there. I love working with them. They are experts in what they do. And so that's nice to have them. Um, but I don't spend my time, right, um, having to spend a lot of time with them. I kind of trust them to do their job, which is really nice. Um, and then I love kind of getting into the data and the analytics and kind of understanding it. You know, the big thing right now is understanding cash flow. You know, I bought a million dollars in cash flow, but, um, you know, it's, you know, I got to figure out if, it, if it's actually still there, um, especially with some of these supply chain disruptions. And, and now as I'm watching interest rates continue to creep up, you know, I've got that big loan payment that I've got to be very careful about in cash flow. So right now we're focusing on profitability. We're focusing on cash flow. Um, and then I've got to make sure that I've got the right team in place. The... Um the cash flow and, and inventory management is, is something that people who in e-commerce always say that like if you're an e-commerce novice comes as a rude awakening, you, we underestimate the complexity or the, yeah, like you make a lot of sales, but the money goes right back out again to, to buy new inventory. Are you finding yourself going through that now? Like the, like, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So <laughs> absolutely. So instead of, you know, a lot of people hire CEO coaches, I hired a CFO coach. Um, specifically to help me work through all of this. And so, you know, there's profitability of the business, but I'm doing it profitability on an individual skew level to understand, you know, where where is all the money going to, especially as we're seeing the PPC ad cost start to creep up. You know, I've got a feeling that some of these products may not be as profitable as, as we initially, as I initially thought they were. You know, my, my manufacturer raised prices this year, you know, shipping costs continue to go up. And so there, you know, when we, when I put the LOI in, I had actuals as of May and that's what I had based the price on. And so a lot, you know, it's almost a year, a lot has happened since those actuals. And so kind of getting a better understanding of what um, future costs and steady state costs are going to be is definitely kind of one of my, my key things that I'm working on right now. And what about the, the people piece that we touched on before and you were drawn to e-commerce so that you wouldn't um, get sucked into the quagmire of, of managing uh, a lot of people? Do you feel, I know it's still early, so we're 90 days in um, or less than 90 days in really. Uh, do you feel that that's playing out, that you're, you're enjoying the day-to-day -day of your the, the intellectual stimulation of the of the job and not having to be on the phone all day with people or, or in person with it? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I batch my calls in the morning um, from like nine to 12 and I get all my calls done uh, and kind of have all of that extroverted time. And it's not just with um, the people on the team, but it's, you know, the bankers, it's the bookkeeper. It's like, there's always kind of a, a set of calls, the accountant. Um, and so I try to get them done in the morning. I kind of, you know, get all that done. And then I usually go for a walk like midday and I'll either listen to your podcast or listen to something and just kind of <laughs> reset. And then I come back and I kind of pick one thing to deep dive on or to focus on and to learn because there's just an infinite amount of things to learn. And I think having kind of that, uh, like that two hour block to just sit and think about something and learn about something is kind of how I work best. And so that's been working for me um, really nicely so far. And I hope I can kind of keep that cadence. 
two last questions for you. Bob. I'm backpedaling here a little bit, but it's an important one on, again, risk, assessing risk of this business and of e-commerce businesses in general. This was also a young-ish business, five years old? Yep, five years old, yep. So, 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 and that's one of the reasons that SBA doesn't like e-commerce businesses because SBA generally likes slow and steady because they're more predictable, um, at least in theory. And so an e-commerce business that, um, you know, e-commerce businesses typically make, like in your case, show a lot of growth, year over year growth over the, the sh typically short duration of their histories. And that um, discomfort that SBA has is one that we as buyers of businesses might also have. So yeah, you know, your, your trailing 12 months was a million dollars SDE, but you know, look at the year before that and the year before that, it would have been significantly less, I presume. Yep. How did you how did how did you get comfortable with that? You're paying for numbers only in the last 12 months, not in the last 36 months. Yeah, I mean it's it's a couple of things. One, it's um understanding the seller and the role that he was playing, right? He was only spending five hours a week on the business. He was really relying on on the paid ads to really drive a lot of the marketing. And so I felt that was one of the things that if I could open up the marketing leads, I could grow the business. And, and, and kind of simplistically, if he was spending five hours and I was spending 40, I've got to be able to do something with the business. Um, yeah, and yeah. so, yeah, yeah and no. so kind of the the opportunities that I saw that because he wasn't spending enough time on the business weren't really being, you know, he couldn't really pursue them. And now having the bandwidth to actually try some of these different things, um, I felt like, you know, I, I had confidence. And then with my background being marketing and strategy, it kind of fit nicely where I don't have to worry about the manufacturing because it's all contract manufacturer I don't have to worry a lot about the logistics. It's all third-party logistics. And so I could focus down right on the actual marketing and, and kind of driving the business. Um, and so I just, it, it was like a good match kind of skill set-wise of what I was interested in. Um, and so, and you've got to take the risk at some point. Yep. Yep. Great. Um, and then just lastly, morally, the future. So um, beyond growing Amira in the ways that we've already talked about, uh, buying another business, are you thinking that far ahead? You know, you've only got whatever, 3,997 <laughs> weeks left here, so. Yeah, no, and, and that's what's kind of fun. Like kind of loosely, I think there's a way to organically drive Amira. There's also um, opportunities to inorganically drive the business, you know, a lot of e-commerce platforms, if they can kind of operationalize the back end, then it's kind of easier to plug in um, new brands. And so, you know, I, the goal is at least for the next year or two to focus more on the organic growth and see how much I can do and then potentially look at inorganic and hopefully we're at a, you know, a different peak in the cycle at that point too, to kind of open up some more opportunities. Um, but yeah, but right now it's definitely focusing on the business and seeing organically what we can do. Mm -hmm. Okay. And do you feel now, that now you're an entrepreneur? Is it what you expected? Is it what you wanted? Is it like looking, talking to your, you know, morally of two or three years ago, would she be pretty psyched or how would she feel? Yeah, I mean, I'll say, well, like the Morley of three years ago thought her world was was ending, right? Thought thought that everything was falling apart. And so kind of being where I am now and 
feeling that I had, um, you know, not only accomplished my dream of being an entrepreneur, but also just um, emotionally and mentally grown through the journey of reassessing what my priorities are and then what I was really looking for. Absolutely. Like I, you know, I love it. I wake up every day excited. I mean, there's, there's the low level anxiety of like, okay, am I going to be able to pay my loan payment? But, but there's the greater excitement of I'm actually, you know, driving something, building something, working for myself. And that's, yeah. And that's pure gold. Well, congratulations, Morley. Um, it's been an eventful three years for you. And I'm really happy to, to hear you say this. Um, it, it feels like the accomplishment that it certainly looks looks like from my perspective. So thank you. Thank you for coming back on. Um, we'll check in with you again, probably later this year, maybe next year, and uh, hear how things have gone in the interim. Perfect. Thank you so much, Walla. I really appreciate the time and and what you do for, for all the entrepreneurs and, and aspiring entrepreneurs out there. Great. Thank you for saying that.